0: All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we never want to get tired of that. And Lord, we're thankful for your word. Lord, your word is so, so deep and yet so specific and so encouraging. And Lord, it's, it's what we need to be equipped for every good work. And so Lord, we we thank you for your word, and we, we desire to give, give it proper place today. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit as we read your word together. So guide us and lead us now, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to, you, to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And as I'm thinking about it... Uh, I hope, hope you know that I'm not one that tries to be dramatic, <clears throat> unless I need to, all right? So at the risk of sounding dramatic, please come back next week, okay? I mean, don't leave this week, right? But please come back next week. Next week, as I'm thinking through these chapters, is Daniel chapter 9. And I will tell you this. This is the semi-dramatic part. But I think it's true. In terms of biblical prophecy students, I think there are two types of biblical prophecy students. Those that have at least some familiarity with Daniel chapter 9 and some that don't. And people that understand biblical prophecy, if you say, what are the, you know, what's like the first two or three chapters that come to your mind, Daniel 9 is on the list. Daniel 9 is so foundational, and yet so encouraging, and just all of that, there's just so much biblical prophecy that's wrapped up in Daniel 9, it's... it's it's almost hard to get our head around. So I tell you that also, to please come and, and be here for that, uh, but I tell you that also to please pray for me this week that I don't mess it up. So uh, it's, it's a, uh, a very high-profile prophetic chapter. So leading up to that, you know what we have? Daniel 8. So here we are, Daniel 8. Daniel 8 is a beautiful, beautiful chapter, again, like all the rest of them. The first six chapters of Daniel, as you, as you probably know by now, are mostly historic, chronological events in Daniel's life. Daniel was a captive from, uh, from Judah, carried off to Babylon as a part of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, Babylonian reign there uh, during that time of five 605 BC was when he was carried off, and the conquest over Jerusalem went on from 605 to ultimately 586 BC. And so Daniel was in in Babylon uh, during, uh, really, during most of his life, carried off there as a young teenager, uh, most likely. And so those events, those historical events, uh, some of the events during that time in Babylon for Daniel are chronicled in chapters 1 through 6. And then chapters 7 through 12 make a jump, and they they go from sort of the the narrative uh, with some prophetic details for sure, but the narrative then goes to really pure prophecy from Daniel 7 through through 12. And we learned about that a little bit last week. Uh, Last week was a vision that Daniel had um, uh, during the time of Belshazzar. And as we know, um, if we remember back in chapter 5 was a story of the last night of Belshazzar's reign, the last night of the Babylonian Empire as we know it, um, when, you know, the handwriting on the wall and all of that. And so then when you go to the chapters 7 through 12, you you know, it kind of, uh, we'll see mentions that tell us where to put that into the, the historical piece of Daniel's life. So anyway, part of why I say all that is... I think it's probably healthy. I alluded to this earlier. I think it's probably healthy for us to almost interchange the word history and prophecy to a certain extent, okay? Because if I give a prophecy, I'm telling of a future event, right? Now, if I am a prophet of God, like to the point Daniel is, which I'm not, but When Daniel gives a prophecy, it is so explicitly accurate that most Bible critics say, no, that had to have been written over here, and Daniel is actually writing history. And so, whether it's history or prophecy is merely a matter of when it was written, but the message is the same. Does that make sense? And so... um, so Daniel's writing a lot of prophecy he's writing some history and what's fascinating to us is that from Daniel's perspective he's writing prophecy that's all future for him but we can look back and call at least some of it what history Daniel to Daniel it's prophecy to us it's history but it's so exact that to look at the actual message itself is almost indistinguishable does that make sense And so Bible critics, and I just encourage you, because you're probably going to come across this, Bible critics say, that's got to be history. Couldn't have been written by a a guy before because it was so specific. Well, what would you just do if you said that? You said, God wouldn't have known. God couldn't inspire a prophet. Why do we call him a prophet then, right? God couldn't inspire a prophet to be that specific. Well, God did. And there's lots of reasons for that. There's, there's lots of, uh, um, you know, if you ever want to kind of look in the details, we've alluded to it a little bit. In the interest of time, I won't go through all of it. But there, there are lots of, of uh, very sound arguments as to why Daniel wrote during the time that we believe he wrote during the reign of the Babylonians, particularly uh, during this time period. So, keep that in mind, because he's writing so specifically. Now, one of the historical events he talked about, we read about in Daniel chapter 2. Everybody remember Daniel chapter 2? Remember our friend? I got him here. Huh? Huh? All right, we'll do it. We'll do it. Hey, we, we can flex. We already flexed once today. We can flex again. See my friend? You like that? You like that guy? Yeah, he's right here. He looks kind of like that guy. That guy. No, he did. All right, well, just trust me when I say, remember the guy. All right, that's all right, Titus. Thanks. Everybody give it up for Titus. Right. Oh, did we get him? Oh, yeah. He's a little blurry, but what the heck? There he is. Are you okay with this guy? Okay, so this is our friend. We haven't given him a name yet. Before we get out of Daniel, we probably ought to come up with a name for him. But anyway, we'll call him our friend from Daniel chapter 2. This is Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, right? You remember this? And again, I want to show this kind of repetitively because this is sort of a... Chapter 2 of Daniel was also a, a prophetic foundational chapter right? In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. I saw this weird statue, and what's up with that? And so uh, Daniel gave the interpretation. The statue had a a head of gold represented by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire, had a chest of of silver uh, represented by the Medo-Persian empire with the two arms, uh, a belly representing the Grecian empire, and then two legs representing the Roman Empire. And then down at the uh, transition of the two legs are sort of ten toes, which is kind of a, uh, we'll read a little more about that in, uh, next week, uh, sort of a revived Roman Empire. Uh, it was alluded to last week in chapter 7, sort of, remember the ten horns, and one horn came out of the ten horns and and all of that. So in many ways, chapter 7 was sort of a, uh, uh, uh sort of Daniel's vision part of the same sort of thing, except this is just Nebuchadnezzar's version, and it makes a nice picture. So today we talk primarily, and, and, and I just give you this for perspective, today we talk primarily about the silver chest of the Medo-Persian Empire and the bronze belly of the Grecian Empire, all right? Everybody got that? Keep that guy in your mind, because I can't promise that we'd ever be able to get him back. All right, so chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me to to me Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. That's the one that we heard about last week. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. So, the timing here puts him two years after the vision of chapter 7 uh, that we heard about last week, the four beasts, and yet it puts him 14 years before the fall of Babylon that we read about in chapter 5. So again, like I said at the beginning, we've got to have to put, kind of put this into, into place. What's, what I think we need to kind of keep in mind is because this is 14 years before the fall of Babylon, who's going to take over the Babylonians? The Medes and Persians. Okay? And we recall at the end of chapter 5, after the handwriting on the wall and Belshazzar is mocking the God of the Jews and all of that, um, that Darius the Mede comes in and conquers Babylon that night. And so, um, but that's 14 years yet future from this. So Persia, and the Medes and Persians aren't really on the radar yet as a dominant threat. Okay, But Daniel's vision is places his mind in the region of Persia. So uh, about 200 miles away from actual Babylon. He says, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last, I saw the ram pushing nor- westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver him could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will, and became great and so again, like last week, you may recall, we had sort of the vision, and then the scripture itself gave us the interpretation of the vision that 's going to happen again this week. Well, how we 're going to do this is I'm going to explain it as we go through, right? And then by the time we will read the last half uh, from, really from from verse 15 on, we'll read that kind of quickly because by the time we get to there, it'll be review, and you'll have it all nailed in your heads. Is that fair? Okay. I heard this week that AI can, like, make sermons for us now. Have you heard this? Yeah, they can take, it, they can, you know, you can punch in Daniel 8 and like, you know, maybe your theological bent and whatever like that. And you can punch it in and it can spit out a sermon for you. And if you've got a real good computer, it can like do your mannerisms. And so I was just sitting there thinking, AI would have to say things like, is that fair? And, you know, my jokes and all that. I don't think AI could come up with my jokes. So we're safe. We're on safe ground, and this is me. Okay, this is really me. Okay. Anyway, just had to say it. So we're going to get the interpretation from the last part of the chapter, but for here we see uh, we're going to see a we see a ram, and the ram has two horns. Now last week we talked about uh, a bear that had two sides. Remember, one side was lifted up higher than the other. And again, as Drew mentioned, you know, how do you picture that? I don't know. But in this case, you got two horns, and one, one is higher than the other. And again, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, and I like that Daniel's given us some repetition, and he's making this very clear for us, uh, because I think he wants us to understand this. And again, keep in mind, this is prophecy to Daniel, it's history to us, because this has happened. And it happened very specifically in very much the way Daniel described. So it's these two horns, Medes and the Persians. The Medes come first, but have you ever noticed in the ancient world when you study ancient history, when two, um, two nations or two entities, we'll just say, come together to thump another entity? And then they thump that other entity And then, have you ever noticed this throughout uh, ancient history? Those two nations live in perfect harmony for the rest of time. Has everybody noticed that? There's no power struggles in the ancient world. Nobody kills the other guy's kids, you know. None of that, right? No, of course there is. So there's going to be... So the Medes and Persians are collaborating to overthrow the Babylonians, and the Medes come first... You recall uh, at the end of Daniel 5, who came in and conquered that night? Darius the Mede. And that's specific, and we talked about that. If you want to go back and listen to that, that was specific because there is a a character in history that we know as Darius the Great, who was Persian. This is a different Darius that's, that's found really only in the scripture so far. Uh, but that was Darius the Mede. So the Medes came first along with the Persians, but then as the power struggle ensued, the Persians became greater. Okay, how do we see that played out? How does Daniel describe that? Well, that ram had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So the Persian horn is higher, it's bigger, it's more dominant, but it comes up sort of after The mead horn is that fair? So that's how that kind of rolls out. And notice it says that this this ram pushed westward, northward, and southward in the regions that were also that were conquered by the Medo-Persians. These are also uh, represented by the three ribs and the mouth of the bear in chapter seven. Historically, the Persians never really conquered much to the east; like they never went deep into India. Uh, the Greeks later uh, did more of a of an eastward con- conquest as well, uh, and they conquered really all the known world at that time. But the Medo Persian Empire just went uh, north- westward, northward, and southward. We know that again. Please don't please don't miss how amazing it is that I can read Daniel's prophecy, and I can describe our history and they are they're identical and just down to every last detail okay and yes these are images and you know we got bears and we got rams and we got images and we got beasts and we got statues and and all of that but even the explanation we see is so specific that it's easy for it's almost easy for us to say yeah that's history sure but keep in mind that's Daniel writing prophetically. And, and the reason I make a big deal about that is because Daniel's also writing some things that are yet future. So how do you think they're gonna be fulfilled? Specifically or like vaguely like reading clouds? No, very specifically, very specifically. And so I think we can take a lot of encouragement in that. So, so you got the Medo-Persian uh, empire represented by a ram with two horns. And uh, that was a pretty dominant empire. And as I was considering there, verse five. As I was considering, suddenly. Now, what does suddenly imply? <laughs> suddenly, it implies suddenly. A pretty literal group. That's good. Uh, quickly, right? Maybe this is a quick, uh, quick thing going on here. Suddenly, a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he, then he came to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but, the, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. So you got this ram, this two-horned ram, the Medo-Persian empire, that's predominant, you know, north, west and south. And then out of the out of the west, what's west of the Medo-Persian Empire? Starts with a G and rhymes with fleece. Actually it rhymes with frees, but that's not a word. Right? Greece, right? The ran, the I'm sorry, the goat is Greece. And interestingly, again, I want you to catch the detail, and I know I'm laboring on it, but I want you to catch the detail. How does the goat run? Fast. And historically, if you look at it, the Medo-Persian Empire was powerful, like massive, like a massive blob. They were, they were like just dominant. And the Greek Empire conquered by speed. They weren't as massive as the as the Medo-Persian Empire but they conquered by speed and so they were a very uh it's just interesting historically how different sort of methodologies are are used in terms of their military strategy and all that and I'm sure people who are a lot smarter than I am have studied all of that over the years but uh the Greeks moved fast and you notice also this this goat that's moving quick across the earth without even touching the ground has a notable horn between his eyes so that notable horn is Alexander the Great king of the Greeks and so he comes from the West Greece is west of Persia and he comes without touching the ground he conquers with great great speed so that's the Greeks now therefore the male goat grew very great But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. Huh. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. So this large horn was broken off. Who did I say was the large horn? Alexander the Great. He was broken off. So history tells us that Alexander the Great, at the age of 33, had basically conquered all of the known world. And basically got depressed because there was no land left to conquer, is how the history goes. There's nothing left to conquer. And so at the age of 33, he gets all depressed. Well, in his fit of depression, he gets drunk. And in his fit of drunkenness, you know, have you ever noticed that bad decisions beget bad decisions? That's just a, that's just a practical lesson for us today. (laughs) Bad decisions beget bad decisions uh, very often. But anyway, so Alexander the Great, He's depressed. He gets drunk. He decides to go out uh, in a drunken stupor at night in the rain, and depending on which uh, history book you read, he passes out in the rain, gets pneumonia, and dies at the age of 33. So... Interestingly, and, you know, people make parallels, you know, Jesus died at 33, Alexander the Great died at 33, and there's lots of very interesting contrasts, obviously, between Jesus and Alexander the Great, but uh, we get the idea that this guy was a a sad case. So what do we see? That male goat became very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. Again, Daniel reads it as prophecy, we read it as history. Alexander the Great was broken off. And guess what happened after Alexander the Great? How do you think that kingdom was divided? How many parts do you think it was divided into? Four parts, right? So, since Alexander the Great is 33 years old, anybody at 33, you think about a succession plan? Or a will, right? At 33, you know, even in the ancient world, you probably didn't think about that much. And so, of course, there's there's no good succession plan and so there's a power struggle and um, basically the land was then, the the Greek Empire was divided into into four parts uh, led by four generals, four of Alexander's generals. So a guy named Cassander ruled over Macedonia, a guy named Lysimachus ruled over Asia Minor, a guy named Ptolemy ruled over Egypt, and a guy named Seleucus ruled over Syria and what is now modern-day Israel. Now you say, Why did you just give me all those names? I can't write that fast. Because I had to look them up, and so you've got to hear them, okay? But, seriously, Seleucus, the fourth one, became sort of the father of the Seleucid Empire. And so sometimes you'll hear about the Seleucid Empire. As a matter of fact, you're going to hear about the Seleucid Empire as we read along, all right? So sometimes, it is actually right now. So, out of one of them... Uh, so there's four horns. So Alexander the Great, that horn is broken off. Broken into four horns. all right? Four n- new kingdoms, if you will, led by four of Alexander's generals. One of whom is Seleucus, who rules over the land of Syria and Israel. What land in biblical prophecy do we really, 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 really care about? Israel. And so, out of the, out of the notable horn came the four winds of heaven, and out of one of those came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. The glorious land is the land of Israel, the land that we know today as Israel. And so this little horn grew out of the Seleucid Empire. Everybody with me so far? You want me to go back to the statue? I start at Babylon if you want, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greek, now we're in Greek, Greek king broke off. Now we're in the four parts of the Greek empire, right? And one of those is Seleucid, and out of the Seleucids grows a little horn. Now this guy, little horn, is Antiochus Epiphanes, and this is a name that I would encourage you to remember. Antiochus Epiphanes is a memorable name in Jewish history, in biblical prophecy, and in uh, just understanding of how uh, the world works, and how history works, and how God's sovereignty works. It's interesting also, I mentioned this earlier, and I didn't. I failed to, I'm sorry. One of the things I want us to keep in mind is that God has patterns of prophetic fulfillment. Okay? God has patterns of prophetic fulfillment. We've seen this many times um and there are lots of examples uh that we've talked about over the over the years and and where you have a, an event that happens maybe historically maybe in the biblical history in the biblical account you have an event that happens and you think man that looks a lot like another event that happens right for example in genesis god told abraham hey i want you to take your son your only son it really is his only begotten son because it wasn't his only biological son. But I want you to take your son, through whom all the promises leading up to the Messiah are going to come. I want you to take that son up on the top of Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him. And you know the story. Abraham went up on the mountain. He obeyed, and he was in his mind, at least in his heart, in his degree of submission to the Lord, he had all but sacrificed his son. He, you know, had the knife ready and, and right at the, at the right moment, right? God intervened and God actually was able to carry out his plan. God was always able to carry out his plan, but God was just demonstrating this. And as we see there, there are just, I mean, you could go through, there are just tons of parallels of that story to another father that was willing to sacrifice his son, right? Who we know to be God the Father, sacrificing Jesus Christ on a cross for each and every one of us for the forgiveness of our sins, right? So we see a, we see a, we see a prior event that points to a future event. Well, that happens all—so that's happened—both of those are historic, right? We look back to both of those. But in the world of prophecy, there are lots of times where we see uh, a historical event that points to a future prophetic event. And this is a classic example where I say it's important for us to understand history and and prophecy and how they kind of go together, because we can look from a position of history, we can look back at this guy Antiochus Epiphanes, okay, and we can say, you know, that guy and everything he did are actually, the the theological term is a type, okay, T-Y-P-E, type. I don't know why they came up with that word, but they do. So you'll hear people mention that word. Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of a yet future person who we know as Antichrist. Okay? So if you want to know a little bit about the Antichrist, you can study the history of Antiochus Epiphanes. Does that make sense? So again, this whole thing of like, is it prophecy or is it history? For us, we can look at history and get a glimpse of prophecy. And there's so much that we see throughout the scriptures and we can look at you know at some point in time you know somebody wrote prophecy and it's yet fulfilled oh it became history we have a lot of prophecy that is yet to become history there's a lot of prophecy that does become history right the dry bones right ezekiel chapter 36 5 35 yeah 35 A.I. would have known that. Uh, Ezekiel 35, see, I'm just, I do that stuff, not because I don't know it, but so you'll know that it's really me. Ezekiel 35, the dry bones, God tells Ezekiel, this is the whole house of Israel. What's he talking about? Well, to Ezekiel, that's just weird prophecy. To us, that is May 1948, history. And you can set your history records on it. Right, So that's one that we see. We look back. And so there's all this. I want us to kind of have this flavor of prophecy and history. If you're God, you see it all. It's all kind of fluid, right? You know, the legs kind of go into the toes, and out of the toes comes the Antichrist. And, you know, you see all this. But this is a good example. of we have this character, a king out of the Seleucid Empire, who we know to be historically Antiochus Epiphanes, and we look to the character prophetically to be a type of the Antichrist. So, that's the little horn. Now, just for clarity, we read about a little horn last week. We heard about a little horn last week, right? A little horn in chapter 7 is actually the Antichrist, because if you go back and look at the particulars, the Antichrist in chapter the horn out of chapter 7 comes out of the Roman Empire. Remember the uh, the guy Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there's 10 feet, right? That's a revised Roman Empire that's yet future, right? And out of that revised Roman Empire is going to come the antichrist. That's the uh that's the horn of chapter 7 that we, that we heard about last week. That is because that guy comes out of the Roman Empire. And again, I'm going to hang on the specificity, because I think God wants us to hang on the specificity. What we have today in chapter 8 is a little horn as well, but this horn comes out of the Greek empire, specifically the Seleucid branch of the Greek empire. So it's a different little horn. So what we have are two little horns, and the one we can look back to historically, and the one we look to, well, we don't look to him, will be in heaven, uh, yet future, okay? So... This guy, Antiochus, did a lot of damage to the Jewish people. Verse 10. And it grew up to the host of heaven. And it cast... This is the, the little horn. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. It grew up to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. Notice we went now to... Uh, Uh, from an it to a he. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down because of transgression. An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. So again, in God's sovereignty, he allowed this guy to prosper. Why is that? We don't know of all of God's answers. But we do have a great picture of what's yet to come. And so uh, this guy, this guy did not like the Jewish people. And you see this pattern through history. You see uh, see evil leaders rise up, right? And usually somewhere in there, they get a little blurry as to whether or not they're a man or a god. Have you ever noticed this? Right? And so this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, he kind of likes to be worshipped. But there's something about the Jewish people. They don't like to worship anybody except God, right? How many times have we seen this, right? How many times have we seen this in this book, right? Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, worship my gold statue. That's kind of like, oh, by the way, the dream was like the head of gold, and the head of gold is going to be replaced by silver, right? Nebuchadnezzar says, well, I can circumvent the plans of God. Let's just have an entire gold statue, So he puts up something that probably looks something like that, except it's all gold. What's that mean? It means the Babylonian kingdom, and me, its king, will never be overthrown, right? Well, that didn't work, right? So we have this. And so that guy, right, wants everybody to bow down to the golden statue, except three guys don't, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what happens? The king flips out, right? Kings that want to be worshipped, that find themselves in the face of, Of true God followers that will only worship God, they don't do well with that. And that is a pattern throughout history. So this guy Antiochus Epiphanes, he didn't like the Jewish people. He hated the Jewish people. He set out to destroy their religion and desecrate it. Historically, he removed the high priest from the temple in Jerusalem and went into the Holy of Holies itself. If you know anything about Jewish history, you know the Holy of Holies was a sacred place. When God ordained the, the original tabernacle and then later the temple, uh, you know he said, hey, only the high priest goes in there and only once a year. And by the way, when he goes in, tie some things to his legs that have bells on them. And that way, uh, because he's in the presence of God. And if he does, any, if he does anything out of order uh, and you don't hear the bells anymore, can you imagine this? Right, like if I start teaching, and I got bells, and after a while, like, is it quiet in here? It's kind of a creepy sound, right? No bells, right? If it, that means the guy's dead, drag him out, right? That's how. That's how sacred the holy of holies was. It was a huge deal. And the Ark of the Covenant was there. You remember when, uh, again, I don't want to overload you with, with details, but to me it's fascinating and it all fits together, when uh, they brought the Ark of the Covenant back from, Sh- back from the Philistines and uh, in the early part of First Samuel, around chapter 6 or so. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the land of Beth Shemesh. And a bunch of these guys around Beth Shemesh are looking at this thing. Wow, that's cool. Wonder what's inside it. They lift the lid. Boom, I think 50,000 of them died that day. You don't mess with God's presence you don't mess with God's presence you honor God's presence and the holy of holies was was representative of the very presence of God now we know God is everywhere but the holy of holies was a special place it was an ordained sacred place so anyway this guy Antiochus Epiphanes he just marches into the holy of holies puts up an idol of Zeus can you picture the blasphemy and, in, and not only does he put up an idol of Zeus, he sacrifices a pig on his altar there as an in-your-face mockery of the Jews. I don't know what could be more blasphemous. I mean, if you had to, like, come up with something more blasphemous, I don't know if you could. To walk into the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem and put up an altar of Zeus and sacrifice an altar, sacrifice a pig on the altar. Right? I mean, this guy was evil. So here's what happened. Uh, you know, we, the Jewish people cel- celebrated Hanukkah around Christmas time, right? So uh, the Maccabean revolt, revolt, anybody heard about the Maccabean revolt? So the, the treatment of Antiochus Epiphanes to the Jewish people was so distasteful that sooner or later they revolted. And it was led by a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus. And uh, he decides that he's going to uh, revolt and uh, kind of make a stand against Antiochus Epiphanes. And long story short, they only had he once he, he reestablished the the sanctity of the holy of holies and, and all of that and reestablished uh, true temple worship and uh, succeeded in revolting against. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and you know, some of you may know the story, uh, at the time, there was only, they had only enough oil to keep the, keep the temple lit for one day, but God miraculously lit it for eight days, right? And so we have the Jewish menorah, right? Which is an eight, sort of an eight-part candle, right? That's a, that's a celebration of that. Jesus, in John chapter 10, Verse 22, there's a reference that he was uh, in Jerusalem around the Feast of Dedication, and that's also called the Feast of Lights. That was probably this holiday that he was actually celebrating. And so, again, in Jesus' day, this was history, right? The Maccabean revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. And so, um, according to First Maccabees chapter 1, this is a, a part of the apocryphal books, uh, says, quote, the king sent his chief collector of tribute into all the cities of Judah, this is Antiochus Epiphanes by now, and spake peaceable words to them, but all was deceit. So I just want to highlight this for a second. Antiochus Epiphanes, part of his methodology was at first he's going to be all peaceful, but it was completely deceitful. Take note of this, and I tell you this for uh, social and, and worldview and historical and political awareness, when the Antichrist comes, he will not come like a dragon. He will come as a very smooth agent of peace, just like Antiochus Epiphanes. And he's going to make a covenant with the Jews, and he's gonna, they're going to think he's their Messiah, and everything's going to be all hunky-dory until he reveals his true colors, and it's going to be ugly. And that'll be during the great tribulation period. And so, uh, just like Antiochus Epiphanes did, so the the Antichrist will do. Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host, to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Check this out. And again, you know, uh, historians don't 100% agree on all this, but i got to believe it's, uh, it fits, because it's, it's, it's pretty tight. So, Antiochus Epiphanes does this temple desecration somewhere around September 6th, 171 BC. Okay, you can Google this if you want. Look this up. Somewhere around September 6, 171 BC, he goes in. He does this uh, this blasphemy in the holy of holies. Sets up a, a temple to Zeus, an altar to Zeus, and sacrifices a pig on the altar. Okay. A little bit of time goes on, and there's and. After a while, the Jews have had enough, and Judas Maccabeus comes in, and he leads a successful revolt by the miraculous power of God, and they reestablish uh, proper temple worship. Anybody want to guess how many days elapsed between the desecration of the temple and the restoration of the temple worship? 2,300 days. December 25th, again, we celebrate Hanukkah Christmas time, December 25th, 165 BC. And so we see very specific prophecy, which now we see as history. We see Antiochus Epiphanes as a type of the Antichrist, and uh, we'll read more about that next week. You know, Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse 15 and 16, he said, therefore, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, we're going to read about this a little more next week and beyond. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so what Jesus himself is saying is there's going to be an abomination of desolation that Jesus says, when you see it. So Jesus is talking about a future event. So again, this is after the time. It's future from Jesus. So when you see that, he's talking about the Antichrist. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and he's talking about the time will come when the Antichrist, after three and a half years of making peace with the Jewish people, guess what he's going to do? He's going to go into the temple. He's going to desecrate it. And... I don't know if he's going to put up a statue of Zeus or whatever the god of the day is going to be, but he's going to, he's going to deal with it as blasphemously as Antiochus Epiphanes did. And so Jesus himself said, when you see the abomination of desolation, speaking of the Antichrist, and he's talking to Jewish people, he's talking to a Jewish audience when he says this in Matthew 24, when you see this happen, spoken by Daniel the historian, Did he say that? No. What's Jesus called Daniel, by the way? A prophet. When you see that spoken by Daniel the prophet, take cover. Because that's an ugly time in in world history, like never before. That'll be the midpoint of the tribulation, and the subsequent three and a half years will be called the great tribulation, as some people call it. And um, not to get into... Too much detail, but I believe with all my heart, and there's lots of good reasons for this. I believe with all my heart the church will be raptured immediately prior to the tribulation period. So we'll be—I don't know how it works—we'll be looking on it from heaven somehow, right? But uh, there will be people, and God will—God will definitely save people through all of this because they're going to be seeing all this, and they're probably going to go back and study Daniel a little bit uh, in a flurry. Uh, but these things will happen. So Jesus regarded Daniel as a prophet. Jesus speaks of a future event that looks very much like what we would call a historical event. Verse 15, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood and when he came I was afraid and fell on my face but he said to me understand son of man that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now again the vision referred to the Medo-Persian Empire then the Greek Empire and then the subsequent four branches of the Greek Empire and one of them gave rise to the to Antiochus Epiphanes who's a type of the antichrist. This is all yet all the stuff that Daniel is seeing here is prophetic to him, but historic to us, okay? And so some would say, oh, this is about the end times. It refers to the time of the end times. So I think you could take that to mean this Antiochus Epiphanes, he refers to the time of the end times, the time of the Antichrist. And so so he's going to give the interpretation now. Now, As he was speaking, verse 18, with me, and I was in deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. And so everything is under God's sovereign hand. Please know this. Everything is always under God's sovereign hand. We can read the newspaper today and wonder, does God notice what's going on if we're not careful? Sometimes we can feel like maybe God's surprised by this event or that event, or, or it seems like the world's in chaos, or the world's spinning out of control, or, you know, there's, there's this, you know, I was talking to somebody this week, I said, if I wasn't a Christian, think about this now, think about this from an evangelical standpoint, if I were not a Christian today, I wouldn't know which thing I should flip out about, Right? if I were not a Christian today, right? And I believed everything I read, I would be flipped out about a a recent pandemic and the the possibility of any future pandemic. I would all of a sudden know about pandemics and they would freak me out, right? I would freak out about uh, the environment, right? I would freak out about political polarization, I would freak out about the economy. Check this out. I was talking to my friend about this this week. Oh, yeah, I won't even go there. Okay, I have to now. Sorry, I opened the door. If you believe Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, okay, we recently came through a time where catastrophic and in her her kind of description, big time, huge, crazy, catastrophic economic collapse was averted because two guys that are political opposites were able to come together. Does that make you feel secure in and of itself about our financial position? Right? Is it possible that the next time two polar opposites might not be able to come together? Right? And what about the backlash of the fact that the two polar opposites did come together? Right? And again, that's not a political statement one side or the other. It's just a statement of our vulnerability in and of itself. Right? But guess who's on the throne? God is on the throne. God was on the throne during the instability, in the instability times that we're reading about in the days of Daniel. God is every much a part of the, uh, is is the same as we sang about earlier the same yesterday today and forever god is still on the throne and god will never be off the throne and so please don't forget that especially as we read some of these historic and prophetic events so he picks up he says verse 20 the ram which you saw having the two horns And again we'll read this quickly because it's now now review The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, Alexander the Great. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in his place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with the same power, not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king, Antiochus Epiphanes, shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes... His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Who's going to be who empowered that guy? Antiochus? Satan. Who empowers the antichrist? Satan. Not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. So interestingly, Antiochus Epiphanes was broken. You know, these these ancient rulers, usually they die, how? In battle, right? This guy was, this guy, history says, was eaten by worms and died. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Acts chapter 12, King Herod comes out. The people say, you're awesome. And they go beyond that. They say, you're so awesome, you're a god. And what's King do? He says, well, all right. Boom, struck down. Anybody ever tells you you're a god? Run, right? He says he receives worship. He did not acknowledge the god of, the god of gods. And it says he was eaten by worms and died. So seems to be a pattern amongst people like this. And so, uh, he died, but without human means. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. And so, just for 30 seconds, if you will, Daniel's response. He fainted, he was sick for days. A lot of this kind of stuff can kind of, if we're not careful, make us feel faint and sick, right? Sick at our stomach that, that, the, that, that a king would come and put up an altar of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and worship a, and, and sacrifice a pig on it. That should make us a little bit sick. But we shouldn't stop there. Too often as Christians, we sit around and whine about the sinful world we live in, right? Please don't do that. Please go from that point. With a heart of compassion, as Jesus had a heart of compassion, and then what, what did he do? He went about the king's business. What should you do with this knowledge that the rapture couldn't be here any day? That prophetic history, if you will, is yet to be fulfilled? Some of it's been fulfilled, some of it's yet to be fulfilled, but it all fits together according to God's sovereign plan. What should that do to you? It should make you go about the king's business. What should you do when you wake up tomorrow morning? Live your life. Live your life. The king's business, the king that you serve, the king Jesus. So, prophecies should cause us to rest in God's sovereignty, God's perfect plan for humanity, while at the same time doing the king's business and sending his love into a lost, lost world. So, God's prophecy is very specific. It's so specific we can look at it as history, uh, the part that's been fulfilled. And part that hasn't be f- been fulfilled, we can look to it as specific prophecy. And so it's a great encouragement to our faith, uh, but I think it's also a great motivator. I think that, um, you know, as we understand prophecy, as we understand uh, the times and seasons as Jesus described, uh, we know that we're closer than we were yesterday, right? And, uh, A lot of things, uh, uh, prophetically, are very timely, right? And as we look at the news, uh, we shouldn't be, uh, I don't know what the word is, we shouldn't be depressed about it. We should be maybe a little disheartened uh, by humanity, by sin. We should be compassionate. We shouldn't be surprised. God said all this is going to happen, right? Right? Everything's playing out just as God said it would in so many ways. And yet God still came from heaven to earth to die on a cross for each and every person on planet earth, past, present, and future. And so he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that what? Whosoever, whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's a great hope that we have. It's a great hope that we have. It's a great hope that we have to share with others. So we should be diligent to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. And we thank you, Lord, that you are so exact, so specific. So specific historically, so specific prophetically, so Specific in the lives of these biblical figures and so specific in your care for us. Lord, you know the number of hairs on our head. You know the things that concern us. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith, that you will carry us through whatever trial. You will carry us through what we need to go through. But, Lord, help us to look to you and help us to rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.